0: Welcome to episode 48 of The Process, Run Your Own Race. To live my life, I had to learn my lessons. I had to keep that smile, but deep inside I'm stressing. I was trying to keep my spirits from that deep depression. It's time to tighten up. I put my pride down and pick that Bible up. Welcome to episode 48 of the process. I am Amonte Martin. Today we have Dr. Keila Foster on the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Foster. Thank
1: you. I'm so glad to be here.
0: Thank you for joining us. Uh can you tell the listeners where you're from?
1: I am actually from Maryland, um, a small county called Howard County. Howard County, Maryland. What was it like growing up in Howard County, Maryland? So we're about, we're between uh, Baltimore and Washington, D.C. I'm like 25 minutes from Baltimore, 35 minutes from Washington, D.C. To kind of get the best of both worlds, we live in the suburbs, it's quiet, And you're able to still get to the city, like access it on the weekends without having to drive far or, you know, fly to a near city and still escape the hustle and bustle. So I thoroughly enjoyed uh, my experience growing up in Maryland.
0: Uh, Do you have any siblings?
1: I have one sibling, I have a sister who's younger than me. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know they don't like to be called the baby sister anymore. <laughs> She's like, I'm the youngest, <laughs> and um, that's it. My parents are from my mom's from Arkansas, my dad is from Mississippi. So all most of our ninety percent of our relatives are in the South. The few that are up here are like distant cousins. You know, they come up here for military or come here to work for the federal government, and so we see them. But most of the relatives, aunts, uncles, the um, ones that my sister and I are closer with living this out.
0: Through your academic journey, you know, did you face any hurdles or obstacles that you had to overcome?
1: So I'll start from I'm gonna call it chapter one and we'll say we'll start at college, uh, okay. undergrad. I went to undergrad at Howard University and you know, I was thoroughly prepared from high school career. I was thoroughly prepared, I feel like my freshman year of college sophomore year, I pledged a sorority. I pledged Delta Sigma Theta. And then junior year, I had a job. I had a leadership position on campus, and the job was off campus. I didn't have work-study. I had a leadership position off campus, on campus, as well as I was in a sorority. On top of, remember, we're in school. Mm-hmm. And so, my GPA dropped um, my first semester. And it it, was, it became below 3.0 and to keep my scholarship I had to maintain a 3.0 and so I was able to keep my scholarship that entire year and then went to go talk to the financial aid people around May and you know I asked them about the repercussions I was like does the scholarship state that you have to have it every semester or is it cumulative at the end of the year and the scholarship specifically stated that you had to keep it every semester and so my scholarship was dropped mm-hmm. for my senior year And so what I realized in that hurdle was I was balancing too much on my plate. I was trying to do too much and I was looking at the next person who could balance that much. And I'm like, oh, I can do the same thing. I can do the same thing. But what I realized is I had to run my own race. Mm -hmm. I I had to realize if I was gonna have a job off campus, so you have commute time, you have work time, and you have commuting back, I could not hold a leadership position on campus as well, as much as I really wanted to. And so there was just a lot of things senior year I had to step back from because I just felt like if I'm paying out of pocket now, it's not fair to not maintain the best GPA. Mm -hmm. And then of course you have the hurdle of your senior year, not only graduating, um, passing your comps, making memories with your friends who you may not see, for a while until the next homecoming, if you come back to homecoming, but also finding a job. And so I know it was one of my first major, hurdle, major hurdles, you know, it's mm-hmm. life altering. Um, and then after that, I joined the Mississippi Teacher Corps mm-hmm. and I moved, packed up my stuff, moved to Mississippi, um, two weeks after I graduated and stayed there um, for two years. And I attended Ole Miss. They paid for my master's degree. The program did. And I taught Algebra one um, for two years at a high school in Sardis, Mississippi. And to be honest with you, I mean, I had never thought about attending a P- PWI, you know, predominantly white institute for undergrad, mm-hmm. but I enjoyed that experience as well. And I reflected, I also enjoyed my Howard experience, but I felt like wow, I could have maybe enjoyed this experience too for undergrad because what I realized is that Black people made a community. Mm -hmm. And so you not only had that community, but you also had the um, experience of mixing with lots of other different races, which is what reflects in the real world. So I see that going to an HBCU as well as a PWI, they both had their pros and cons, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, And so... I honestly, I don't remember any major hurdles in that program. Um, it was a really smooth experience mm-hmm. until chapter until chapter three. <laughs> That's when I entered my doctoral program in mm-hmm. August 2015. And also balancing taking nine credits per semester with being a full-time 40-hour teacher. Whoa. And so, yeah, and that was a lot. That, that was a lot on top of maintaining your physical and your mental health. And I think as you get older, it's harder to maintain physical and mental health. I don't know what happens. Yeah. I honestly don't know what happens. <laughs> it was easier in college and undergrad, but once grad school hits, it's, it's a little bit different. And so some of my major hurdles were when I got papers back, um, there was tons of red and yellow marks. To this day, <laughs> I've red and yellow marks I'm I'm afraid of. I thought I was a great writer. I've always been a great writer. My undergrad was in journalism. I used to write people's papers for money in undergrad and grad school. And then all of a sudden, my papers aren't good enough. So now you have the, wow, am I good enough for this academics right now? And um, one of my classes, I received a C in. And you have to receive all A's or B's. If you receive a C, you have to take the class over. And so you know that impacted me um it can it can impact you your you your mental health
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know you're not going to be able to go on with your cohort members because you have to stay back and take this one class and again it's running your own race we don't know why this stuff happens it happens um and just kind of like exploring that barrier um because we know that that's a process of life. Stuff happens to you that may not happen to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And accepting that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also accepting what happens to somebody else will not necessarily ever happen to you. So, yes, those are some of the things that I had to overcome mm-hmm. while in higher ed.
0: In higher ed, yeah. You talked about a lot that kind of is relevant to me. Um, especially kind of biting off more than I can chew at some points in my life. Um, How did you know back, you know, in undergrad that, you know, cause sometimes you don't know that something is too much until it's too much. And then you have to, you know, see what you can do as you did with your, you know, trying to figure out about your scholarship and things like that. But what advice would you give to an undergraduate student who's ambitious, who wants to, you know, be involved as much as they can, but also trying to juggle uh, their academic curriculum?
1: Right, so the advice that I would give is prioritize. Make sure what you're doing is important enough that it's going to help you maintain your scholarship, maintain money in your pocket, and help you get a job after undergrad. And I understand that socialization is important, but I just think that it's, you need to figure out what is the utmost important. Because what's gonna happen is, the socializing is gonna come at the time when you should be in the library finishing an assignment for an eight, nine or 10 o'clock class. But you think that you can go socialize and then come back at 12 in the morning and finish this assignment for the morning class and you just end up not finishing it, And then you don't turn it in. And so it's just really important to prioritize and also look at yourself in the mirror. Um, how, how do you look physically? right cuz stress shows up in our body how are you feeling mentally um, to be able to seek out the free counseling services that are on your campus and or now you know we're in 2020 you have telehealth appointments that you can make with a counselor at home that maybe your parents can refer you to or maybe somebody who you were going to before you went to college so that you can be so that you have an outside person that's also being able to check and gauge your mental health
0: you know, um, I went to Florida a undergrad. Um,
1: wow. I really wanted to go to Florida A&M.
0: That was my <laughs> top choice. It's funny. I, I know a lot of people from, I, I'm from, I was born and raised in Tallahassee. And mm-hmm. it's either you go to FAMU or you go to Howard. And so <laughs> huh. I know a lot of bisons in Tallahassee. A lot of bison in Tallahassee. Um, bison in Tallahassee. Uh, but I wanted to ask, because now I went to Florida a undergrad and then Purdue University for my master's And so I had that, you know, HBCU to PWI experience also. But I wanted to ask, you know, how was that transition going from HBCU to PWI? And what were, like, some, I guess, the stigma of a PWI? And what was the reality of the
1: PWI? So I think that I was really blessed.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I think that I was really blessed in the sense that I was in like a cohort teaching program. So it wasn't just the master's degree program for going to the school. Like we were, we went to school on Saturdays, Friday nights, Saturdays, Sundays. Um, All, probably only 10% of the people in the program were from Mississippi. We were all outsiders. And then the roommates who I had were both black. Um, They both worked in the school district where I worked. And then I was also able to like, connect with the church family and so i felt like though the world around me was white my world was still kind of what i knew Mm -hmm. so it was still black you know where i hung out and then where i worked so i wasn't like thrown into this total pwi university setting Mm -hmm. and i've had friends who have told me these kinds of tales right they went to columbia university or they went to like Michigan to get their MBA. And they said that it was lonely. It was really lonely. And I never felt that loneliness only because of the way my community was set up. Mm -hmm. But I think in terms of the stigmas with the PWI, just some things I noticed going from Howard, which is one of the top tier HBCUs, to going to Ole Miss, which is a state school. Ole Miss has a lot of money. Their endowment is deep. Their sorority fraternity houses look like mansions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Their their access to be able to get my transcript, library services were on time. They were um, very very timely. Um, I never had any issues with waiting. The customer service was great. The customer service was great at Howard as well. But I feel like you know. Just in terms of time, I had to wait longer for certain things. I think looking back now, I, sometimes I think that if you find the right PWI, you can be able to find your community.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, But I will say this, this is one thing that I did notice. I did not have one black professor in the graduate program. And so when we talk about kids in K-12, you know, when you ask a black child, or just any child in America, how many black male teachers did you have? Okay, now how many black female teachers did you have? You can, you can really see how that can sway you in life when you're not seeing somebody that looks like you in the educational classroom.
0: Yeah, I can definitely um, identify with uh, finding a community. You know, um, when I was recruited to Purdue, I was recruited by an individual, um, Dr. Lavon Esters, who actually was a graduate of Florida A&M University. And so he started a cohort of HBCU students at Purdue, and that was our cohort. And I mean, I couldn't agree more. It's all about the, the cohort and the community that you kind of create um, once at a PWI. I mean, my experience now at the University of Florida is totally different, but I definitely agree um, with the community aspect. Did you always want to do PhD? PhD? Um, what motivated you to pursue a PhD, and what was your um, PhD focused on in terms of your research. I
1: always wanted to go to school to be a pharmacist. So Howard, Xavier, and Family were my top three choices. And then I failed chemistry my freshman year of college and realized I can either go back and try it again or I'm like I can find something else to do. So I really just started looking at other careers. I love to write. I didn't like the broadcast side. Um, but, I, but journalism was for me. And then just one day I sat down with a professor who had her PhD, who taught, and I just talked with her about, about a PhD, earning a PhD, and what was that like, and what can you use a PhD for? And I just thought to myself, if I couldn't be a, a pharmacy doctorate, maybe I could be an educational doctorate on the other side. And so it's always been my goal eventually to get my PhD, yes, and so in education, you have the educational doctorate. And so that's what I earned. And so I, I'm i grateful to be able to have earned it um, because after graduating from Ole Miss, I definitely applied to Ole Miss's doctor, doctoral program and the doctoral program at University of Memphis. And I made it through the last round and then I was not accepted. And so in my mind, I was like, well, maybe I'm I, maybe I'm not supposed to get my doctoral degree. Now I don't know what to do. But when I moved back home, I applied to four different schools and it was actually accepted at all four and looked at the money. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's always it's always been my goal. And I hope that more young black people uh, as well as other minorities continue to pursue higher education degrees, terminal degrees, because there's not a lot of us out there.
0: Before I did my master's degree, I didn't know what a Ph.D. was. Um, I didn't know, I knew, I knew what a doctor, a doctorate was, but I didn't know what it took to, to achieve that goal. You know what I mean? I didn't know what you had access to once you received your uh, PhD. Could you, um, tell the listeners or explain to the listeners, you know, what a PhD is, um, and what you can do with one?
1: A PhD is considered a terminal degree, the highest degree that you can receive in the various subject areas, liberal arts, social sciences, sciences. PhD is a um, doctorate in philosophy. EDD is an educational doctorate. And so you basically are taking classes above the master's degree level, usually about 60 credits, and then you're writing an entire five-page dissertation. I'm sorry, you're writing an entire five-chapter dissertation and so with the dissertation you're creating up your you're you're researching a subject area you're you're researching the background the problem you're coming up with research questions to be able to answer it's like a science project and then you are conducting your research whether it's qualitative which is usually interviews or whether it's quantitative which is gathering data in terms of numbers. And then you're writing your conclusions from those. And so with these terminal degrees, you have the opportunities to go on and do research. You have the opportunities to go on and write books. You have the opportunities to go on and become a professor. And in order to teach other students, master's degree level students, undergraduate degree level students, that are in that subject area that you have your doctoral degree in.
0: Once you decided to pursue your PhD, uh, what motivated you uh, in your topic area? What was your research focus?
1: On the particular school district that I'm in, well, first let me back up. Because my degree is in educational leadership, our chair prefaced to us that we had to, our our topic had to surround principals' perceptions of something. Mm -hmm. And our chair is more qualitative than quantitative so he pushed us to trying to do uh, more qualitative research and so I had the idea of looking into behavior and or how does behavior influence graduation rates with black and brown girls and then we sat down and we kind of discussed it and he was like well what aspects of behavior and I said well what do they use as like behavior methods so that Kids are not suspended and kids are coming to school and attending rates. The attendance rates are going up. And then I know that our district is leading in restorative justice for the state. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of wanted to explore the principal's perceptions of their role in administration of the program. And I know that restorative justice, I just think that restorative justice, uh, social emotional learning are just very needed topics that educators need to discuss more and more research needs to be presented on it because there are a lot of kids who are when these kids turn into adults there are a lot of kids dealing with anger issues at the house and so it's one thing to come to school and be a behavior problem but we want to get to the root of the behavior problem Mm -hmm. and nine times out of ten the root of a behavior problem is anger it's anger and attention and so and one way of exploring anger and attention is counseling. But if we can't always get counselors, then we can also introduce restorative justice, which serves as a mean to reconcile and understand a problem and understand how you've harmed a community. And so from there, you know, I wanted to understand the administrator's role in their implementation of restorative justice practices in their
0: school. How, how was it, you know, managing, did, did you, cause you're also a full-time teacher. Yes. How, how was it managing being a full-time teacher and a PhD student?
1: The management at the very beginning, first semester, first year was pretty easy until that summertime when I got a C in the first class. And then it kind of went downhill because the classes get harder as the program goes. Mm -hmm. And so just managing that and, you know, I'm an adult who has ADHD, right? Attention deficit hyperactive disorder. And I was diagnosed with that in second grade. And so throughout my adult life, post-college, working and also being in graduate school, whenever the balance of life gets too hard, kind of like what happened at junior year of college, I have to make sure that I'm able to go to the doctor to stay up on my medications, Mm -hmm. to stay up on either taking um, Metadate or Ritalin to kind of give me that focusing edge Mm -hmm. that a person who does not have ADHD may may come with. And so, because what happens is with the person, someone who has ADHD, you can oftentimes feel overwhelmed You have too much going on at one time. You don't know how to organize yourself. You don't know how to process things. And so you start slipping. Nothing is ever at 100%. In fact, nothing is really ever at 90, 80, 70. It's usually at 50 and 60. So you're really not getting much of anything done. You're just doing a whole bunch, but just 50%ing at at it. So nothing's ever at 100%. -hmm. And so it's making sure that I'm working alongside with my doctor to make sure i have the right dose of medication and we say the right dose the right dose that's time release that'll last throughout the day that won't put me in a sleep coma you know make me sleepy um that's going to work it's not if i take it at six in the morning because i have to be at work at seven thirty. it's not going to stop at 1 p.m knowing i have the whole rest of my day to get through mm-hmm and then also figuring out the organization mechanisms. Uh, ever since I've been in counseling, organization and also uh, group therapy, just under, just working with people has always been a part of my program. And so when I mean organization, uh, just making sure that I, I write my list of tasks down weekly. I hang it up, I post it, I'm a big post-it note person. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big post-it note color person. Like all the green notes will be what I have to do for my private life. My, you know, our bills, all the yellow notes will be for work. You know, all the blue will be what's going on on the weekend. So I'm just a really big color differentiation person and just making sure that things are organized in the sense that I have bills in one pile. I just, I just, I don't just have things strewn all around. Bills are in one pile. I will keep my schoolwork in one backpack. So everything dealing with schoolwork was in this one backpack and then everything dealing with my job was in this one backpack. Because if I start lapsing and throwing everything in one bag and then my lunch on top of that, I don't know where anything is.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's like this whole, you know, hodgepodge. And so it's just remembering and going back over those kind of d- different organization methods with my counselor, like as a reminder. And I'm blessed to have really good friends and a sister who can also be my 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 declutter companion um, to help me declutter my office or help me declutter my home space or help me declutter a binder. And so oftentimes I find myself doing that with my students as well, because then it helps me stay on top of how I need to be organized.
0: So looking at societal's perception of ADHD and having ADHD and, you know, Within the educational system, how did you find, you know, your comfort zone with ADHD and managing your ADHD while pursuing, you know, a graduate and doctoral degree?
1: I definitely think that I'm still, I'm still finding that comfort zone. Mm-hmm. I don't think I think that with things that are char- characterized as behavioral problems, things that are characterized as a mental health issue, you're always still finding a comfort zone. And it's finding a comfort zone because you have to still learn to run your own race. You have to still learn that being a boss may look different to one woman, whereas it looks different to the next woman. Often being a boss to me was making sure that I had everything for work for the week and I had my lunch plus snacks, plus remember my purse for the day, and I was at work on time. Mm -hmm. If I could do all that for five days, in a row i was the boss Mm -hmm. i might i might have not have been on social media for a whole month i might not have gone to any outside events for a whole month just work gym library but to me that was the boss and and that goes back to running your own race but back to your original question about feeling the comfortability i'm still not comfortable right Mm -hmm. when we when i went to 12th grade when i went to ninth grade to high school I, I remember having a conversation with my mom where I did not want her to put that. Remember, you have the medical card you had to fill out yeah. and give it to your first period teacher? I distinctly remember her. Remember telling her, don't put that on my medical card because I feel like the teachers judge me. Mm-hmm. And then when she asked me why, I was like, I know they do. I can tell, like, I'm in the class. I feel it. I see it. You know, I'm at the age now where if I take 10 milligrams in the morning, you know, of Ritalin, and then i taking another 10 milligrams at 12 noon, you can give it to me. You know, I don't need to go to a nurse's office anymore. So you don't have to write it on that list. And then going to college and then having to remember to take it. And, you know, if we if we think about it, like realistically, I mean, ADHD, it's not really discussed or talked about that much in the black community in the sense of something that's Something that you can overcome. Yeah. It's more like this is what they're diagnosed with. We're going to give them an IEP. Yeah. And then from the IEP goes, oh, now do they have a learning disability in something? Where, and I mean, I don't mean to brag. I don't have a learning disability in any subject area. I have passed ninety percent of the tests I've taken in life. I'm a really good test taker. I'm a really good student. And so, to Think of me and being in that category is one reason why I don't talk about that because you feel the judgment of, well, well, was she on an IEP? Well, I, I wonder what else is an issue because we think that ADHD goes hand in hand with other issues, and some other things may manifest from it—depression, anxiety—but those things may ebb and flow with whatever's going on in your life at the time, and so. I'm still figuring out my way of how to talk to it about people, talk to ADHD with the people. But I know that when I taught elementary special ed, it was, it was a little bit easier because I had parents who had newly diagnosed children who were on it, and they wanted to talk to me about their children's symptoms on days when they gave, when they were taking their medicine and days where they won't. And I could tell it's night and day. I could, I, as soon as they walked in the room, I could tell they hadn't taken it that day. As soon as they walked in the room in the morning, I was like, oh, they took it that day. And so then I reflected to myself, can the world tell on days when I don't take it, my medicine and I do. Hmm. Um, or can I reflect it and see it in myself and I can. And I think that we have to just be okay with being able to talk about these things because I am not the only black girl that has it. There are other people in the world who have it as adults, whether they were diagnosed as a child or whether they were diagnosed as an adult. Yeah.
0: I think you, It's it's interesting. Each week, you know, everyone has a different story, but I find something in that story that I can identify with. And right now you're talking to my kind of what I went through in school. I ended up um, not graduating high school, but getting my GED. But I remember um, in middle school and high school having IEPs, you know, being in remedial classes. And I'm a horrible test taker. Um, But, and I remember um they suggested that I be on Ritalin and to my mom that was like an insult you know what I mean like you don't need that medicine you know what I mean that was that was kind of the perception of it and so I want to ask it's 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 like you're still finding your comfortability of being comfortable with it but what you have done is overcome by you know taking each step at a time and so I want to see I want to kind of did more into, you know, what did you do or what advice would you give to a parent that you know, they get that news that you know, your child may have ADHD and it's not like the end of the world, you know what I mean it's not, it doesn't mean that your academic career is over.
1: Right, so one thing I have to realize is that my parents are both um, out of all their siblings, they're the only ones who went to college mm-hmm. and so I was able to have access to insurance and outside medical professionals mm-hmm. and so one thing that You should tell a parent is always seek a second opinion, but everybody cannot seek a second opinion. And so that's the first piece of advice. The second would be to read up on all the different medications that your child can take. Because I understand where your mom is coming from. You don't want to, a lot of parents are very skeptical of starting children out on different medicines because, you you know, every, every medicine has a side effect, right? I often have dry mouth. I often um, get sleepy earlier in the day, right? Because it kind of works with your nervous system and slowing it down. So you're going to have these different side effects. I remember one of my elementary students who got diagnosed with it, he was always thirsty. I mean, just thirsty, 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 thirsty. And I remember thinking, wow, he's like the younger version of me. I'm always thirsty. And so we also have to appreciate our parents because we know historically Black people have always been the lab rats for different types of animals, Mm -hmm. right? Which is why our parents don't go to the doctor, are scared of doctors, skeptical of doctors because of those situations. And then I think that they need to be able to seek out, you know, ADHD parent groups or talk with teachers. You know, that's why I want to be more vigilant in talking about it, to talk with other teachers because who who may have it, right? Like I was able to trust that parent and let her know that that I had it and that the medicine is actually helpful. And it may be, a, it's, it's helpful in the sense that what your child is struggling with that you can't see, that you think is just the behavior or defiance toward um, humanity or defiance toward academia, it's really something beyond their control. But if they could get the medicine at the right, diagnose you know, the, the right uh, milligram, they may be able to function on the level that they should function and then aspire to what academically they can be able to pursue, right? Mm -hmm. Because everything is not a function of your academics. Sometimes things are going on with your body, you know, like ADHD is that balance of that hyperactivity that needs to be calmed down. And so I think that there are more open and free workshops about it, not just here's the diagnosis, go for and take medicine because along with medicine, you always have to have a therapy. When you're given medicine, if you have heart issues, what's the next therapy? You need to go to a physical therapist. You need to join a nutritionist. Medicine is always joined with therapy, but nine times to the 10th ADHD, we're not joining therapy with it. We're just giving them the medicine, pick it up and let's go. Because like I said, along with that is now with this newfound calmness, how do i now work with that how do i now how do i now learn because i've never been able to learn before so now i'm here able to learn and so i think also to add to that um, parents have to know that k-12 is basically the parents hands on the child's shoulder guiding them so that when they turn 18 and leave they have the tools they need to be productive and if we're not giving them those tools in K twelve, we're not a, we're not setting them up for productivity once they graduate from high school or once they turn eighteen and leave your house.
0: I agree. I want to I want to ask you. Um, so looking back over your academic career and over your life so far, um, what advice would you give your younger self?
1: First advice I would give my younger self is to run your own race. Mm-hmm. Right? We know that in the Bible they talk about. Uh, and Timothy, running your own race, keeping the faith and, you know, your, your, your struggles and your obstacles are exactly for you and they're exactly what you have to have. So if you focus like when you're driving a car and when you make it to a stop sign, a point, you can look left or right and we can talk. But if we continue to run our own race, then we'll be happy. Will know that this is for us, right? I I was very sad when I lost that scholarship to Harvard. What I realized is that was a wake up call for the rest of my life. Yeah. Kela, you can't balance five things on your plate like somebody else can, and that's just the reality of it. And when when I mean to tell you, I when that reality set in later on in my adult years, and I started with I started being able to be okay with saying no, I can't. No, I can't do that no I can't do that it was like a sigh of relief and it was a sigh of relief because I only told one person that I lost my scholarship in undergrad and my sister nobody else knew but when I was able to say that no and then there was the why I was explaining but then I realized I didn't have to explain I would also start explaining opening up about what happened at Howard University and relating that to the money I'm making on a job or relating that to my mental and physical health And I know that another piece of advice that I would give my younger self is that in terms of, you know, trusting the process, there will be times where you are alone, right? There Mm -hmm. will be times when you're going to be by yourself. And if we think about it logically... We came in the world by ourselves. We're by ourselves. So There's no way in this whole time we're, on a, we're, on, we're in this world we're never going to be by ourselves. And so it's being able to learn what do you do in those times when you are lonely and you're by yourself. Yeah. What do you need to learn about yourself? What do you need to improve? Because this is giving you that time to improve. Um, this is giving you that time to say if I needed to have a paper done October 1st and I have comp- I have nothing to do the second weekend of September this is the time I need to be working on the paper because the next two weekends are booked and I'm going to be working and then October 1st comes the net- the third weekend. So it's understanding what to do in that loneliness and knowing that lonely is not a negative word. Lonely alone, by myself I mean these are not negative words and too often we look at them like a negative word as well as not to dwell on being perfect if there's one thing my students will tell you I tell them every day and every week the best person is the imperfect person
0: mm.
1: everybody is not going to be perfect and perfect is just a I mean perfect is just perfect is like an anomaly what is perfect I mean mm-hmm. what is what is what is perfect is there a per, I mean there's one perfect person right we've never met him But what is perfect? Perfect is what you make yourself to do. Perfect is what standards you hold to yourself,
0: what's perfect. I kind of hit on it a little bit just now, but um, what does trust the process mean to you?
1: What does trust the process mean? Trust the process to me means just knowing that whatever you set your mind to, you're going to get there. Your road is never gonna be straight. Your road is just never going to be straight. You're always going to be driving. There's always going to be a road bump. There's always going to be a flat tire. There's always going to be a a speeding ticket. There's always going to be some type of obstacle that comes up in the way. But trust in the process is knowing that these certain obstacles are meant to grow you. And they're meant to grow you so that when you reach that destiny, This process has gotten you ready for that destiny because you're going to look back when you get to that goal and that destiny and say, hey, if I didn't go through that obstacle, I wouldn't have grown. I wouldn't have gotten the maturity or the clarity. I wouldn't have known how to deal with something emotionally.
0: What advice uh, would you give someone who wants to, uh, you know, obtain a Ph.D. one day or is thinking about it? What advice uh, would you give them in terms of seeking out an advisor or a school Uh, and research opportunities?
1: Right, so I would say that if a student who is pursuing their bachelor's degree is interested in a PhD, to first look at the school that they're attending. And if there's somebody there who has the PhD in the program they have, to email them, make an appointment, um, talk to them. Professors always hold office hours and professors always have TAs teacher assistants that they can also put you in contact with. I I know I like to talk about academics and I know that other academias probably most likely love to talk about academics and you want somebody to come behind you to be able to pursue that degree because you're not going to be here forever. And then to write down, you know, so, so that you can see it visually, I'm interested in pursuing a PhD in computer engineering, or maybe I can interest, I, I'm interested in pursuing a PhD in education and getting the master's in engineering, like writing down all the different pathways and then speaking to people who have that last destination goal that you're interested in, so that PhD, and then asking them what was their pathway to it. And so we know that with mentorship, it's basically asking people who are where you want to be, how did you get there? Mm -hmm. So that you can be able to work backwards, work, they're telling you their, how they're, Their story is basically going backwards to where you are, to where they are now, so that you can be able to pick that up and move forward. And then you're building your network. You're building your network of, they'll ask you, well, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Maryland, but I'm attending school at UVA, or I'm attending school at Virginia State, and they say, oh, I know some contacts in Maryland, or oh, I know some contacts wherever you live if you decide you wanna go home. And so you just never know where those conversations
0: will take you. I agree. I want to uh, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Um, Are there any lasting words that you want to leave with the listeners?
1: I would say that one of my lasting words is knowing that education historically has not been free for for minorities, and it is free now. And since it is free, we need to take all the opportunities that we can to learn as much as we can. And just never forgetting the process of learning for granted and then making sure you go back and you share that knowledge with people.
0: Where could the uh, listeners find you to connect with you or they want to share their, uh, you know, review of, of your podcast episode, where can they reach out to you?
1: So I am on Instagram and Twitter and my handle is by B-Y Dr. Kela,
0: K-E-I-L-A great thank you again for joining us and sharing your story and being so transparent Uh, we really appreciate having you on
1: this episode was brought to you by overcome achieve clothing allow what you have overcome to fuel the flame of persistence as you face and conquer your next challenge wear your truth overcome
0: Channing, trust the process. Trust the process. Trust the process. I think the main thing for me was trying to decide on who am I and like what I want to be and how I want to be remembered. Like that was my thing. Right? You know, oftentimes I think about like my legacy and like the mark that I want to leave, not only on the industry, but the effect that I want to leave on people being a whole human being, going through my obstacles, going through the things that I'm going through, and not to only broadcast these things, but for it to inspire change.